Well, right on. How's everybody doing this morning? We doing good? Are we dismissing the next offenders or are we hanging out? What are we doing, Amy? I need the next offenders. Get gone. <laughs> Get gone. <laughs> It's not proper English, I'm sure, but you get the point. It's what? Southern English. There it is. Well, it's good to be in the house of God this morning. If you're new here, I just want to encourage you that we make much of Jesus around here. You hear Shauna in the background, and she's excited about praising God. For those, for, the, yeah, for those who may be uncomfortable hearing that, I just want you to ask yourself, how often do you lift your voice for your favorite sports team? How often when you go to see your favorite band play, are you willing to stand before the man who God created and say, yeah, play it for me? But when you come and you stand in the house of God and you fellowship with the saints, you keep your head down and your mouth closed. It's hard for you to feel your heartbeat raise when you praise God. <laughs> I would say take a moment to do an inventory if the shoe fits. Because it's a problem when we can get excited for the created and not for the creator. And if you think I'm wrong, go read Romans chapter 1. We make much of the name of Jesus around here. Hallelujah. Yeah. It is the name that has been given that is above all names, the text says. It is the name by which salvation comes. And there is no other name that has been given under heaven by which you can be saved. That is what the text says. We love to come together and to set our attention, like the author of Hebrews says, to set our attention, to focus, to lay aside every weight. So that what? So that we can run without abandon towards the one who has given his life for us. Are you a Christian? This should excite you. This morning, we're going to pick up where we left off a couple weeks ago in our study in 1 Peter. There are new faces here. If you're in 1 Peter with us, don't worry. We take it verse by verse, and we're going to look at it in its context. So if this is your first study, if you've missed a couple studies, or if you've never read the letter of Peter, you're going to be a-okay. You're going to be just fine, Okay. We're going to walk together side by side as we explore what it is that the author had to say to his audience this morning. Because he had a message, and that message had an intent, and his audience had an understanding. And we want to know that. We're after what did they think about what it was that Peter said. <laughs> That's what we want to know around here. We don't, I shouldn't say we don't care, but we care less about how it applies to us and we care more, right Dan, about the character and the nature of God. 
That's what the text of Scripture exists for. It was a great reminder in your text message. Look, the application is great, but if we're not getting at the heart of God, if we're not getting at the character and the nature of God, when we open up the Word of God, then what are we doing? (laughs) And I would say we're doing something that is less than optimal when we come to the text. So let's turn our attention to what it is that Peter has to say. Today, the text comes from 1 Peter chapter 2. We're going to be reading verse 21 through 25. The text will be on the screen, or you can turn there in your Bible. If you don't have a Bible, let one of the guys sitting in the back know, and they'll get you a Bible. You can take it home for free today. Peter begins in verse 21, For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed." For you were like she- straying, for you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and the overseer of your souls. Father, we thank you for the word of God. We submit ourselves to the authority of the text because it came to us under the inspiration of your spirit. God, we remember that we have all that we need for life and godliness, and yet we are in hot pursuit of a deeper relationship with you. So God, give us eyes to see you. Give us ears to hear you. Let the seed be sown today. Let the water be poured out, but we turn to you, God, to bring the growth. We ask that you would bless our service this morning as we strive to please you in all that we do. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so before we dig into verse 21, if you're looking at verse 21, I just want to take a moment to remind us all of where we're at in the midst of Peter's household code. If you look at the end of chapter 2 going into the beginning of chapter 3, this section of Peter's letter is qualified as a household code. This next slide is going to show us what we've covered, past tense, where we currently are, present tense, and where we're going, future tense. A couple of weeks ago, we looked at instructions for everyone. Generally speaking, Peter was giving instructions to everyone. Specifically, he was telling the church that they must submit to authority. A couple of weeks later, we covered the instructions for slaves. Now we're at Christ's example. In the weeks ahead, these are the things that we have to look forward to. Now, Dr. Keener notes that it is Christ's example of enduring suffering that stands at the center of this section of the text. And we can see that based on what the outline depicts. This means that the Messiah's example is the foundation. Theologians would say that Christ's example is the linchpin of what Peter's household code functions in and around. Apart from Christ's example... Peter doesn't have a household code to write. So everything hangs on the Messiah's life example. If we were to go beyond that, and we could, looking at this, we could say that slaves 
And the wives of unbelievers are particularly like set aside or spoken to. They're invited to identify with Jesus in his sufferings. And if you read through this portion of the letter, you'll see that that is absolutely clear. So having identified Jesus, our master, the Messiah, as the centerpiece of Peter's household code, can you guys please read this next slide out loud for me? Now, New Testament scholar Joel Green notes that verse 21, what you guys just read, this verse requires its readers, that's you and me, it requires us to both ask and answer two questions. So if you're taking notes, write these questions down. First, who has been called? And second, what is it that they have been called to? These are important questions. I said this morning, we're after what Peter was saying and what his audience understood. These are two questions that we need to ask and answer. Who has been called and what is it that they have been called to? So let's tackle question one. Who has been called? Now we've covered this in our past studies. But for the sake of being reminded, we know that anytime we see the term you, think that's the focus here? Anytime we see the term you, Peter is speaking in the plural. Peter does not have the individual in mind here. <laughs> How do we know this? Well, we can prove this because 1 Peter is an encyclical letter. Go back to study one when we did our introduction to the letter. 1 Peter is an encyclical letter. It was written to multiple churches throughout five different Roman provinces, specifically Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. Turn back a couple pages in your Bible, look at chapter 1, go to verse 2, I think it is, and you'll see that Peter is writing to a multiplicity of churches. He does not have one person in mind, and he does not have one body in mind. He has many bodies in mind, many living stones. Grounded on the chief cornerstone. This body, Paul would say, is composed of what? Many parts. And these parts function under the headship of Christ. Peter does not have the individual in mind. He's speaking to the church. We could say to the collective body. Now go ahead and throw this next slide back up. The exemplary behavior of Christ is as much for the faithful slave as it is for the believing wife or for the husband who believes in Christ. As a matter of fact, it goes beyond that. It's applicable to all who choose to put their faith in the finished work of Christ. This outline is super important. Stopping when we study the Bible and looking at what the text is saying and attempting to outline it is key. Why is it key? Well, notice that Peter begins and ends with who? Go to the next slide. He begins and ends with everyone. So this instruction that Peter gives and this example that Christ left for us, it is as much for us today as it was for his audience then. Sound like something Callan said in her message? God's word was not written to us. It wasn't. However, it was written for us. The text of the Hebrew Scriptures is specifically for the people of Israel. The text of the New Testament has its audience in mind. The authors were writing specifically to groups of people. So we can say with full integrity that the scripture was not written to us. The disciples, the apostles, the prophets, they did not have you in mind when they wrote these things. We are not that special. The word was written to them. It is for us. 
We need to remember that when we come to the text. The exemplary behavior of Christ is a model that everyone not only can, but should willfully follow. Having concluded that Peter has the collective body because he's speaking to everybody, having concluded that that's the answer to question number one, let's attempt to answer question number two. What is it that they, the collective body, have been called to? Now, we could rephrase that question. We could say, what, it is, what is it that we, the collective body, because it's as much for us as it was for them, what is it that we, the collective body, have been called to? Well, Peter gives us the answer. He says, Christ suffered. Follow in his steps. Oh, I don't know if I like that one. I didn't come to church to hear that. You're going to tell me that I'm going to have to suffer? I'm going to tell you that you have to follow in the steps of your master if you want to be considered an authentic disciple. That's what I'm going to tell you. Remember that in our opening, we discovered that the Messiah's example is the foundation. We said it's the linchpin to everything that Peter writes in his household code. So Christ's example is what's in focus here. Now let's turn our attention to this word example because it is very interesting. Remember, the text was not written in English. So these words have different definitions than we would apply to them. Which means we need to pause, step back, put on our first century goggles, and look at the text afresh. What does this word example mean? I was talking with you, Annette, last week about this word example. It's so interesting. Historically, it means Something written underneath which exists for the purpose of being traced or copied over. So think about this. We're all children. We all know the alphabet. We can all recite the alphabet. But we lack the motor skills to write the alphabet. So when we come to the table to learn under the instruction of those who have gone before us, they place a graph. They place a map on the table. They put a piece of transparent paper on the table and they say, take your pencil or your pen and with slow and steady hand, focus on tracing the line. This is what the word example means. Is it coming to life in our minds here? How about this? Peter Davids writes that faithful believers are like children who walk in the snow. Now this should be very clear to us as Alaskans. If, if we miss this one, God help us. Faithful believers are like children walking in the snow. Children who attempt to follow their father by placing their feet into the pre-existing footprints that he has set before them. Example. Why do we tend? Why does the modern church, and I'm guilty, why do we tend to walk around saying, what has God called me to do? I would serve my church that I claim to love in this capacity where there's a need and I'm aware of it, but I don't know if God called me to do that. What about the marginalized in our society? 
like the young moms who we minister to. Yeah, I would make deliveries to them, but I just don't know if God has called me to waste my time or my gas driving around making those deliveries. Are you following in the footsteps of the Messiah? The greatest of these is what? The one who serves. Jesus said, I did not come to be served. I came to serve. We're gonna, so are we going to trace? Are we going to walk in the footsteps? Or are we going to sit there and play around like we don't know what we've been called to? Overly spiritualizing it so that we can feel comfortable and only do what we really want to do and not what God has called us to do. We better wake up today, church, because there are people in need. And if we fail to serve them, and we are the hands and feet of the Messiah, all authority has been given to me. Go. If we fail, I don't want to stand before God knowing I failed. I don't want to do it. I don't know if Peter could have been any clearer. I mean, Think about it. We, the collective body, have been called to follow in the footsteps of Christ. I just watched the passion with my wife this Easter. Do I really? Do I really want to? Is that my future? Do I have it in me? It's a great question. It's a very real question. It's a very sobering question. A lot of us would like to say, yes. And then we go out and we go to crank our carpet and we're like, what the? How could this happen? Why is my tire flat? Why aren't the kids acting right? In a moment, we're not dying to ourselves so that we can live for others. Now, i got to shift the context from physical suffering to our context because nobody in this room is worried about dying tomorrow for the sake of Christ because we all have it that easy. It's crazy. It's crazy how we get so wrapped around the axle on the little things. And then we look to the text and I'm like, oh my God, they had it so much more difficult than we do. What am I grumbling about? What am I complaining about? I got a temperature controlled house with a comfortable bed that I get to sleep in every night. And every good and perfect gift comes from who? And I don't know if I'm willing I don't know if I'm able to walk in the footsteps because it might be uncomfortable. Somebody better slap me. I need it. Don't think, oh, that's the pastor. He's got it all together. Spend five minutes with me. <laughs> and you will wake up to the reality that I am a wicked, sinful individual who needs a Savior as much, if not more, than you. Now, as we prepare to deal with the final four verses in this morning's study, we need to be aware that this portion of the letter is saturated in the text of the Hebrew Scriptures. We have to know the text of the Old Testament. We've said it. The text of the New Testament doesn't exist 
without the Old Testament. The Old Testament is the foundation for everything that has been written and said in the New Testament. If you've been here and you've been a part of this study, you know that Peter is totally comfortable reaching into the Old Testament and saying, boom, this is the prophecy that Jesus fulfilled. Reaching into the text of the Hebrew Scriptures and saying, boom, this is how we should live our lives. Because God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And he's not changing. Faith and faithfulness. Peter is always doing this. In fact, every New Testament author is doing this. So I want to lay out the roadmap for us this morning so that we're not flipping back and forth from Isaiah to Peter every single verse we move through this morning. So we're going to stop and we're going to look at these verses in juxtaposition. We're going to see how Peter cited them, what they meant then and now, or what they meant then in, in the text of the, uh, in the days of Isaiah and what they meant to Peter, and then we'll, and then we'll continue through our study. Let's see. Ruth, can you read? 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 22, out loud for us all, please. Okay. Now, we can look at what it was that Isaiah the prophet wrote in the scroll of Isaiah, and we can see that Peter is citing the life of Christ. Now, we need to slow down here, and we need to say, what is Peter talking about? Well, he's talking about the passion narrative. If you don't know what I mean when I say the passion narrative, let's just define that now, so every time I use it throughout the rest of the sermon, you'll be aware. The passion narrative is where the death of Christ takes place within the Gospels. It even includes the, the events that lead right up to his death. Okay? Now, Peter is saying, what I know about the life of Christ what I witnessed in the life of Christ, this can be found in what the prophet Isaiah has written. And we see it right here. And they made his grave with the wicked. This is a graphic, illustrative way of saying Christ was crucified between thieves. Did Isaiah know that this was going to happen? No, he didn't know. So the context for what Isaiah is saying is different, but the apostles are seeing this and they're taking this up and they're saying, this happened in the life of our Messiah. And with a rich man in his death, where was Jesus buried? In the tomb of Joseph of Arimathea, a wealthy Pharisee. Although he had done no violence, there was no witness that could say that Jesus had done anything to violate Torah. He had done no violence, and there was no deceit in his mouth. Let's look at the next one. Rob, can you read this? Uh, Let's say Rob Woolsey first, and then I'll have Rob Mersing read later. Uh, 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 23. Read that out loud for us, please. That's all right. That's all right. Isaiah, speaking of the Messiah of Israel says that he was oppressed and he was afflicted. When he reviled, he did not revile in return. He did not threaten. Notice that twice Isaiah makes note that the Messiah of Israel would not respond. Notice that Peter takes great pains to mention that twice. 
he would not respond. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter. Do you remember that Jesus goes to see Caiaphas? He says nothing. You remember that Jesus is taken to see uh, Pilate? He says nothing. We could say, oh, but Jesus did talk to Pilate. But we're talking about in the view of the public. Not in the private chambers where Pilate pulled him aside. Do you remember when Pilate sent him to Herod? Do you remember when Herod was like, ah, I can't even get him to talk. Send him back to Pilate. You remember when Pilate was like, I find no guilt in this man. Give me water so that I can wash my hands. You take and you crucify and kill him. And the people said, may his blood be on our hands and the hands of our children. He opened not his mouth. In any of it, let's look at the next one. Uh, Rob, Mercy, you want to read this one? Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Now, Peter's tweaking language here. But he's seeing what the prophet Isaiah wrote, and he's saying, I saw the master live this out. He has no problem borrowing from the prophets and applying it to Christ. And let's go to the next one. That we might die to sin and live to righteousness. This is probably the greatest news in all of what we're going to study today. He bore the sins of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. Let me tell you that if the Messiah did not make intercession for the transgressors, for the sinners, for those who fell short of the glory of God, if the Messiah did not do this, there would be no option for us to die to sin. If there's no option for us to die to sin, then there's no opportunity to live for righteousness. This is a necessary sacrifice. Let's do the last one. Katya, can you read this one out loud for us? 1 Peter 2.25. Isaiah says, speaking to Israel, we like sheep have gone astray. We have gone astray. Peter takes this and shifts the context past tense. You were straying. You know why Peter can say this? Because the gospel of God has been preached. The imperishable seed mentioned in chapter 1 that Peter talks about went out. And that imperishable seed took root in the hearts and in the minds of the pagan Gentiles who were being ministered to throughout the Roman provinces. And they came to newness of life in Christ through faith in his finished work on the cross. No longer straying like sheep. We have returned. That's the best news. That's the greatest news. Amen. We make much about Jesus around here. So here's the deal. We've laid the roadmap of the Old Testament so that we know what it is that Peter is drawing on. Now we can deal with his letter to the Gentiles in the first century. Can you guys read this next slide for me, please? I love this passage right here. I absolutely love it. Peter introduces with crystal clear clarity. We're not talking about looking through a dirty window here. We're talking about the most expensive gem with the highest clarity rating. 
That's what we're talking about. This is how Peter is discussing, uh, his, having his conversation, his dialogue with his audience. Crystal clear clarity. He says, Jesus committed no sin. This is a core tenant of the Christian faith. This is a non-negotiable. We as Christians do not budge on this. This is a reality. This is a fact. If you have a different theory on Jesus, I'm just going to refer you to Gary Habermas. Your theory that you're providing, it needs to come with first century evidence. We're working from first century evidence. That's where our manuscripts come from. So if you're going to bring a different theory about what Jesus' life was, you need eyewitness testimony that comes from the first century. Otherwise, we don't even have to engage. He committed no sin. Jesus lived a perfect life. Listen to this. According to the authors of the New Testament, Jesus was the sinless Lamb of God. According to John the Baptizer, Jesus said John is the greatest of the Old Covenant prophets. According to John the Baptizer, Jesus is the Lamb of God who would take away the sin of the world. According to an angel of the Lord who spoke to Joseph, Jesus would be the one who would save his people from their sins. Eyewitness testimony of the Apostle Peter. We're dealing with eyewitness testimony, a letter from someone who was there when Jesus was alive in his ministry. Peter says, hey, remember, I'm one of the inner circle too. I'm not just a normal 12. I'm the one that rolled with James and John. Peter says, Jesus was completely sinless. He did not fail in thought, in word, or in deed. This is a non-negotiable church. Don't budge on this. I love what Peter Davids writes. In regard to Jesus, we, the modern student, must understand. We must cognitively recognize that this was not just an apparent sinlessness. There was no deceit in Jesus. Peter doubles down. In his life, he was perfect. Peter would say, I heard Jesus say, he is the truth. Jesus, in his life, requires no airbrushing. Jesus needs no cover-ups. He needs no one sweeping behind him any mess that he left behind. If you're here today and you're suffering, look at me. Everybody look at me. I'm speaking to everybody in the room because there are some people in this room who are suffering. And I know and if you are suffering unjustly at the hands of a violent oppressor, this is common ground for you with the creator and sustainer of the universe because he chose to come down and identify with people like you. Hebrews says that we have a great high priest who is not estranged from our life experience. Our great high priest is familiar with everything that we have had to face in our life because he himself experienced it. So when we think that God is far off, remember that one of his titles is Emmanuel, God with us. He is near and dear to the brokenhearted and he will vindicate you. Maybe not in this life, but ultimately you have that to look forward to. This is the life that we live Leanna Cronister told us, suffering is an equal opportunity avenger. It applies, and everyone in the world experiences it. You can't 
escape. Whether you're an atheist, an Islamic, a Christian, a Buddhist, or just a New Age spiritualist, you are going to suffer. Take solace, faithful saint, that Christ knows what you're experiencing. He is familiar with it. Our suffering is not in vain, and we can say that because his suffering was not in vain. It is through our suffering, Callan said it today, it's through our suffering that God produces some of our greatest growth. I look at Rob and Siobhan and I think, you guys are so much stronger with Seamus in your life. I can't believe a doctor would ask somebody to get rid of a life like that. What a terrible thing to do, to murder a child for the sake of comfort. And you chose other than. And then after going through everything you went through with Seamus, you guys had your experience with Abel. And I was like, ah! You were at their house, we were having dinner, and I was listening to you, and I was like, I don't know what I would do. We can look at you in this family, and we can say, that's what it looks like to follow in the steps of our Savior. We can't deny it. In this family, there are living testimonies. And they are ongoing. And we are thankful for all of them. Christ knows your pain. Can you guys read this next slide for me? Now, we could talk about how Peter chooses to describe Jesus' behavior because that's what he's doing here in the verse. He's talking about how Jesus decided to respond. And we would be right if we did that, if we studied how Jesus responded under immense pressure. However, I don't know about you, but I think it's pretty clear. Jesus was reviled, and he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten. I mean, I don't, I don't know how much more clear Peter could be. We're not talking about, and we don't come to church to study behavior modification. That's not what we're here for. We're here to have our minds transformed and our hearts renewed, to have life breathed into our spirit by the living word of God. So since it's pretty straightforward, I want us to ask the question, what does Peter mean when he writes that Jesus continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly? Every Christian needs to know how to answer this question. It's kind of important. <laughs> if we, the church, 2,000 years plus removed from the text, can discover what it is that Peter's saying, then we can really ask ourselves, are we doing this thing? But if we don't know what Peter's talking about, if we don't know the question, then we can't answer it. Now, Thomas Schreiner says that the verb entrusted expresses an ongoing activity. Ongoing activity. Now, when we studied Galatians, it was like the term that Paul used, keep in step. This sounds in the English like you just have to keep in step. But what happens when the movement stops? Well, the movement never stops. It's keep on stepping is what it means in the Greek. Now here, it's the same thing in the Greek. 
entrusted expresses ongoing activity. This is something, this ongoing activity is something that characterized the whole of Jesus' life and ministry. And it came front and center, particularly during his passion. However, it gets a little tricky when we come to understand that the Greek text has no object. This is a byword. This word has been put into our English text so that we can read it with ease. This word does not exist in the Greek. So now it gets a little tricky. Well, the verb has no object. And this leaves the scholars to debate. So if the scholars are debating about it, guess what? Nobody in this room has a better answer than they do. Gets a little tricky. Did Jesus entrust himself? Maybe he entrusted his cause. Maybe he entrusted the fact that he was about to die. Did he entrust his enemies? You know, wisdom would dictate that since the object is unspecified, it would be a mistake to limit the scope of said object which means that it applies to any and all of the above. It's not just an either or. When someone tells you that scripture is black and white, don't say anything. Just calmly remember this passage and say, not really. Here's what we do know. We know that Jesus, our Messiah, continually handed over every dimension of his life to include the fate of those who persecuted him to the only just judge. We know that's what Jesus did. We have the Gospels where we can turn to and draw first century evidence of that. I would say that Jesus could do this with full confidence because he knew and believed that in the end, justice would be served, vindicating him and punishing those who refused to repent. Now here's the deal. Part of this has already been fulfilled. Jesus has been exalted. He is seated currently at the right hand of the Father. He is reigning and ruling. His kingdom has been inaugurated, and we are waiting for his second coming. So this has partially been fulfilled. What we're waiting for is the final judgment. And Peter says in his letter, when you read it, chapter 4, he will judge both the living and the dead. In chapter 1, he says he will do it without partiality and he will do it according to what we have done. You want another sober wake-up call? Go read that. Meditate on that. Jesus actually believed that in the end, justice would be served, vindicating him and punishing those who refused to repent. Do we believe that? Do we live like we believe it? Is our life is our ministry, mothers, is your life and is your ministry to your children, fathers, is your life and your ministry, is it characterized by a desire to maintain control? Or is it characterized by a continual handing over in every facet of life? Come on. Nobody wants to stand up and talk about this? Nobody's chomping at the bit to say, let me tell you about how good I am at this. 
I want to know when we're suffering under an immense amount of pressure, is it our default to continually entrust ourselves to the one who judges justly? Are we tracing the master? Are we walking in the master's footsteps? Or are our lives antithetical to the very idea of that? What's our default, church? Honestly, let me get real with you. (sighs) This is where I find myself sitting down to trace the life of the master and my letters look more like scribble. If I'm being totally authentic with you guys, I like to make my own path in the snow instead of following in the footsteps of Jesus. I mean, I just want to be able to be honest with those that I'm supposed to shepherd. I need Jesus. God, forgive me. I don't suffer well. I know my calling. And sometimes I rebel against the idea and the thought of my calling. Father, forgive me because deceit can often be found in my mouth. When I am reviled, I love to revile back. When I suffer under the hands of the unrighteous oppressor, I will threaten, especially if I know I can take them. Come on now. Father, forgive me. Where you succeeded, I fail. And I fail often. I am the antithesis of the example that you have called me to follow. God, help me to be more like Christ. Help me to put my trust in the Lord the one who judges justly. Knowing what a terrible person I am, I should be praying these words often. Often. My community should be asking me if I'm praying these words. You should be holding me accountable. And the relationship is two-way. Knowing what a terrible person I am, I find myself so thankful for these final two verses in the close of chapter 2. Can you guys read this out loud? so thankful for the words of these two verses. This is the antidote to Matt. This is the answer to the problem. This is the solution. This is the only viable solution. I want us to look at the opening of chapter, of, uh, of chapter 2, verse 24, in light of what Peter chose to write back in chapter 2, verse 21. Look at this. You is plural. Christ suffered for you. 
He's speaking to the church. He himself bore our sins. That's good news. Because I can't bear it. I cannot fulfill the righteous requirement of the law. Romans chapter 8. Matt can't do it. Thank God somebody could. I love what Dennis Edwards writes. The sacrifice of Jesus was vicarious. He carried our sins so that we could abandon them. Praise God. Christ suffered in his body. In his physical body, he suffered. This is Peter's way of saying that God willingly chose to identify with the human situation. He came into time and space and put on flesh. He didn't have to do that. He chose willingly to sacrifice himself so that we could be reconciled back to God. The Father did not ask him to sacrifice himself. He offered himself. This is not a sacrifice on the altar. Christ willingly went and was slayed by the hand of sinners, not by the hands of priests. He suffered in his body. The nature of our Lord's suffering was redemptive. Talk about the promises of God. I will what? I will redeem you, Exodus. You will be my people, Exodus. I will be your God, you will be my people, and I will dwell in your midst, Exodus and Revelation. We have a good God who makes great promises and is faithful to all of them. His suffering had a purpose and it had a function. Alan Stibbs writes that the purpose of Christ's passion, his death, was to bring those for whom he suffered complete separation from sin and the possibility of a new and righteous life. The suffering which Christ willfully endured, ultimately it secured our healing. I read this very interesting quote. It said, this is the strangest of antidotes. It said, the physician willfully took on the sickness of the patient so that the patient could be well. And God is our great physician. The suffering which Christ endured ultimately secured our healing. The salvation which is offered and obtained in Christ alone is not just a freedom from a future judgment. This is not fire insurance, everybody. (laughs) And it's not just a freedom from present guilt. It's a freedom from the life of sin so that we might live as God intended now. Like right now in this life. Not later, not tomorrow, not next month, not in a couple years. Now! Peter writes that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. For Peter, this goes beyond forensic justification. you got to love the reformers. But for Peter, this goes beyond forensic justification. It goes beyond one's newly secured position. For Peter, it's about the God-given ability to live new life right now. Right now. Are we doing that, church? 
Are we doing that? I want to know if we're doing it. Or are we just talking about doing it? A life. Think about a life that is no longer dominated by sin. Go home this week and read the letter of Romans. And think about the beauty of being set free from the penalty of sin and being set free from the power of sin and longing to experience being set free from the presence of sin. Romans is a beautiful letter. Go home and read it this week. That's my encouragement to you. A life no longer dominated by sin. And you can have it now. In Christ. We have been healed spiritually. We have been healed spiritually so that we might live differently now. Have we already forgotten how we started this morning? I have, and I'm the one speaking. Peter's writing to the collective body, saints. He's writing to the redeemed. These words have been written to encourage and to build up the bride of Christ. That's you and me. Peter says, you were straying. I love that. You were straying. Past tense, Matt is no longer straying. Matt is no longer lost. You are no longer straying. We are no longer lost. You were straying. This is no longer the case. When we heard the gospel, we responded properly because there is a proper response to the gospel. Through faith, Peter says, you have now returned to the one who willingly laid his life down so that you could take yours up. You want it? He made a way. It's your responsibility to understand that He has already made a way. The finished work of Christ. If we're talking about the finished work of Christ, He has nothing left to do. To return and to establish a kingdom does not require the saving grace. The saving grace has already taken place. We're going to experience a greater act of grace, I would say, when we're given resurrection bodies like the body that Christ is in right now. Man, he did a great work when he saved me. He's going to do an even better work when he rewards me. Because I'm going to be able to live sinless for eternity face to face with him. I can't do that now. A greater act of grace awaits us. Are we excited about that? Are we just focused on the cross and then our sin and the problem it creates? We should be the most hopeful, joyful people in the entire world. You have now returned. You have now returned. Jesus said, I am the good shepherd. Jesus said, the good shepherd lays his life down for the sheep. Jesus said, I know my own, and my own know me. Jesus said, my sheep hear my voice. I know them, and they what? They follow me. How did we start today? What's the call? 
the reward for tracing the life of Christ? The reward for putting your feet in his footprints? That reward that was secured by the Messiah? That reward is eternal life. Eternal life. And it started when I gave my life to Christ through faith in the finished work of his son under the preaching of the gospel as the spirit moved in the midst of where I was. Are we there? Are we there, church? We're going to wrap it up. I want you to think for a moment if you were a first century slave it's actually impossible for us to even do that. But I want you to try to consider what life would be like for a first century slave who was being unjustly oppressed by a wrathful master. I want you to think about the wife of a Gentile who gave her life to Christ and had a husband who was not following Jesus. Do you have a question, Ryan? Right? You're absolutely right. You're absolutely right. We're going to get there. But I'm asking us to think about the first century audience for a moment. How encouraged would you be if you had been raped by your master as a slave? If you had been beaten as a child by your father who was a non-believer and yet you were told by your mother to be encouraged because she was a faithful follower of Jesus. Imagine going to a first century home church service and having someone read these words where the person explaining the letter that's being read would say, Jesus knows exactly what you're going through. He was beaten he was brutalized. And he was innocent of everything. That would be perspective for the slave in the first century. Maybe that would give them what was needed to return to that same environment and to serve faithfully. Even though everything in them said, no, don't do it. We don't have it half as bad as they did. And Ryan is absolutely correct. There are plenty of modern day examples that we could draw on, but they don't apply to anyone in this room except maybe the 1%. What's our excuse, church? Why do we complain? Why do we grumble? Why do we refuse to trace the life of Christ? Why do we refuse to put our feet as spirit-filled believers in the footprints of the one who has gone before us? Why do we rebel when we should be obedient? History teaches us that the words of Peter were enough for the early church. As a matter of fact, I could go as far as to say the only reason we're here is because the words of Peter were enough for the early church. Those who went before us, we are the byproduct of that.
What I want to know is if the words of Peter are enough for us. Christ suffered so that we could thrive in this life and in the life to come. Don't forget that he suffered so that we could live righteously now. Trace the life of Christ. Walk in the example that he set for us. Amen? All right. I'm going to close with a word of prayer. We're going to call the worship team up and we're going to close with a song. If you need prayer today, I'm going to ask a couple of the saints in the room to go into the back room. Look, there's no walk of shame. We want to make this clear. Going to the back room is not a walk of shame. Everyone in this room needs prayer. The question is if we're bold enough to get our butts out of our seats and go receive it. That's the question. There will be somebody back there who's willing to pray with you. Father, thank you for this day. Thank you for your word. I pray, Lord, that my zeal would not interrupt your word going out with my loud voice. I pray, God, that your spirit would carry the seeds of the eternal word of God, the word that does not perish like the flower of the field or fade like the grass. I pray that the spirit would carry that seed into our hearts and that we would take that same seed and that we would cast it into the hearts of those in our city that we would sow into our children and into our children's friends, that we would sow into our brothers and our sisters, into our uncles and our aunts, our nephews and our nieces, our grandfathers and our grandpas, our friends and even those who consider us to be the enemy. You were sinless. You willfully laid your life down so that we could be reconciled back. There is no greater message that exists. Help us, Father, to live as you lived. Help us to share as you shared. Help us to serve as you served. In Jesus' name.